I believe that God's going to love me no matter what, even if I drink. I'm just going to cut off communication if that happens. And so I want to participate in this relationship. I want to seek and I want to serve and I want to give as an extension of the love that I am receiving. But that's not God's rule. That's what I choose. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hear ye, hear ye. That was the voice of Jennifer H.K. that you heard at the beginning of this episode. And you will be hearing so much more from from her in just a moment on this here episode number 190 of Sober Speak. But first things first. By the way, did you like my hear ye, hear ye? <laughs> I'm feeling a little uh, old English-ish. Wait a second. No, that's too many ishes. I'm feeling a little old English-like here today. So I just thought I'd throw out some old English terminology Doth you know what I mean? (laughs) Do I have that right? I have no idea. But anyway, first things first, this episode is brought to you by Joel and Joshua and Susan and Mr. Anonymous. Do you know what Joel and Joshua and Susan and Anonymous did? Well, let me tell you, they went to our website, Soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little... PayPal tab, and they made a a contribution. Thank you so much, Joel and Joshua and Susan and Mr. Anonymous. This episode is coming right out to you. You know, sometimes when I'm doing that right at the beginning, I feel like I'm doing the uh, what do you call it? The the reindeer thing where Santa's calling in his reindeer. What now? Now. Dasher on Cupid, on Donner, on Blixen, on Comet, whatever that was. I feel like I'm I'm going through that list in my head. But nonetheless, we are gl- muchas gracias to all of you, and we are glad you are here. I, John M., just another bozo on the bus, will indeed be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So take a seat, if you so please, around this virtual table, and let's get started. Remember, 
no matter who you are or what your past looks like, you are welcome here. It is an open table, and we are glad, so happy that you have joined us today. I am going to go right into Jennifer HK Part 2. And once again, if you didn't catch last week, or I'm saying once again, but I don't think I've said that yet thus far, but I'll probably say it on the beginning of this episode, actually interview with her. But nonetheless, we had Jennifer HK Part 1 last week. You can either listen to this one first, then go back and listen to that one, or you can go back and listen to that one and then come in and listen to this one. I'm not real picky to tell you the truth. I think you're going to be able to benefit from Jennifer HK either way. But if you did listen to part one, you will know that Jennifer has a wicked sense of humor, but we are going to get down to some uh, some more serious subject matter on this episode, even though we do talk about Jennifer's home bar again, which I love, and a term that Jennifer uses called alky logic. <laughs> that, that is what us alcoholics have. I absolutely love that term. Jennifer talks about her experience with what she calls being a, quote, orbiter around AA meetings, and you'll have to listen in for that. She says her idea of heaven is wings and bib overalls. <laughs> she talks about her relationship uh, with her husband and how that came about and developing her, quote, ideal sex relation, as is mentioned in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. She addresses God's love. God's judgment, and so much more. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I do present to you again, Jennifer H.K., and we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this ep. Enjoy. Okay, everybody, so we are back again with Miss Jennifer H-K. And I am going to ask you, Jennifer, to go ahead, introduce yourself, give your sobriety date if you wish, and tell people where you live in this great land of ours. Well, hi, y'all. My name is Jennifer Hulley, and I am an alcoholic. I've been kept sober since December 5th of 92, and that's my miracle. And I live in Plano, Texas. And we talked about this last time, but we are actually very close to each other because uh, Plano and Frisco, where I live, actually butt up next to each other. And as you said last time, you grew up on the mean streets of Plano. That I did. And the mean streets of Plano is kind of a joke because there aren't many mean things going on in Plano. Not a lot. Pretty tame. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty tame. So last time we got together with Jennifer, we talked about uh, her sister. Uh, We talked about her mom and her family and growing up there where she grew up. We talked about her home bar. We talked about some of the, uh, the... interesting situations she got herself into during her drinking and about how she moved in next to her home bar, thought that would solve things, but apparently it did not. Uh, And then we were kind of moving forward from there. So we really got through kind of the, I guess, the middle point or kind of the end of your drinking there. So why don't you kind of take us through maybe those last days, what it was like going through maybe into your first AA meeting and uh, like to hear about that. 
Okay. I had, I, I had gotten a couple of, of DWIs and, um, by the time my drink drinking had progressed, I'm probably eight years in at this point. And, um, I'm, I'm a daily drinker and a daily drunk. I have two jobs that I do. Um, I, I am a preschool teacher, but that kind of starts getting really complicated as my alcoholism is progressing because they want me there every day in the morning, you know, fully dressed <laughs> and ready to function. And that starts getting real tricky for me because I just don't know where I'm going to be. And um, time gets real fluid. And um, so just before I really never got fired, which is the, the miraculous thing is that I never got fired drunk because we have those little antennas that know when we're getting real close and I jumped before they pushed me. Um, I've gotten fired several times sober. I got, got a little sassy, but, um, <laughs> sassy, but, uh, so I, when, when the daycare would get a little too rigid about morning, then I would quit and I would go to work at a bar and cause drunks and four year olds are kind of the same thing. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> I had some transferable skills and, um, but with the bar, then there's really no bumpers. Cause I'm not working at some classy place. I'm working at pool halls and that kind of dive bars. And, um, but with that, then I, I, you know, I'm drinking a lot. I mean, I, there's just, there's no off switch and that starts getting out of hand. And so I keep sort of flip-flopping between these two different jobs. I'd go back to the daycare and not be able to hold it together. And I'd go back to the bar and that's too much. And I'm just Goldilocks in my way through life, trying to find something that fits and it's just not working. And along with that, there's all these I was in relationships. I don't know what these men were doing. I, I mean, I'm just, I, again, I'm delusional. And so I have all these different boyfriends, all of which I'm trying to make marry me. And that's not going well um, because I'm frightening. Apparently I, um, I live in, it's funny now, but I mean, it really was back then. I, I'm just what I, from where I'm standing, I'm just needy and I, I just want somebody to love me. And from their standpoint, I'm angry and I'm abusive. I really am. I, I, I have become violent, which to this day, when I say it out loud, I'm like, I, that is so contrary to everything I know about myself. And yet I, when I am, when I am in my active alcoholism, I am, I'm rageful. And I am physically and verbally abusive. And um, I had, and once again, I've, I, I retold the story to myself in a very different way, you know, that, um, that I was being abandoned and that I was being neglected and that I was the one who was being harmed. Um, but when I look at the, at the true story, um, my alcoholism had just turned up the volume on, on everything. And I, everything seemed to escalate. I, I drank so that I wouldn't have to feel anything bad, but I, I got to where I couldn't feel anything good either. And, and so to prove that you loved me, we had to have this big dramatic thing where I kick you out and you're supposed to beg and all this. It's just drama, just so much drama. And, um, 
And it, my life has just fallen apart. So where were you, you? So you had all these boyfriends. Is there any particular place you're finding these guys? Oh, I'm Is finding that- them at the old home bar. Um, yeah. For the most part, uh, yeah. They wandered into bars, um, pool halls, and that kind of stuff. Uh, we, I'm not really dating. It's sort of they follow me home or I follow them home or something. I mean, we just, uh, we're not rocking a lot of social skills here. And, um, I like guys who have no jobs and no cars, uh, cause they're easy to track. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the fixer upper and, um, again, funny now, not so funny then. Um, I'm putting the bicycles in the back of my car and, and I only have a car cause my parents are, you know, foot in the bill or trying to duct tape, th- t- duct tape things together for me, which I am tearing apart as quickly as they can fix them. And, um, and so I've got this little, this little guy who, uh, he, he had some staying power. I will say he outlasted most of them because he, he grew up with an alcoholic mother and I think he'd had some pretty good training for the chaos that was living with me. And, um, but even he couldn't, you know, he couldn't deal with the crazy. And so he wound up going into the Navy to get away from me. <laughs> and um, But then he forgot what a jerk I am and I forgot what a jerk he is. And we got engaged and, um, but we had a couple of little things going against us. Um, he kind of drank like I drank. And so he kept getting thrown in the brig, which was postponing the wedding. I kept kind of forgetting to be faithful um, because I'm going home with strangers because remember, I don't keep it at home. I don't keep anything at home. And, you know, once you're there at three in the morning, there are expectations. And um, <laughs> and so it's just not going well, you know, but I, I truly believe once again, there's this story that I've told myself that if I can just get married and if I can just have this little redheaded baby, and if we can live in some place with barbed wire where we're both heavily supervised, then maybe we can get it together and turn into adults. And, um, and instead that's just, you know, when the wheels fell off of that thing, because he couldn't stay sober long enough to get down the aisle. Um, then I wind up moving back home with my parents and my parents are still teaching school. They're getting up every morning to go do responsible things and their daughter's living in their home, staggering in at two and three in the morning, bouncing off the cabinets. And I'm just so arrogant. I think nobody knows what I'm doing and that I'm not hurting anybody but myself. And today what I know is that I'm holding them hostage, you know, that they are, they are terrified of me not living there because then they won't have any idea what's going on with me, but they don't want to say anything because then I might storm off. And I, the things that we do to our families, you know, it's, it's just mind blowing that I, I think I'm pulling something off because that they're watching me die. I mean, that I, I am no longer funny. I am no longer singing. I'm no longer joking around. I'm no longer fun to be around. I am completely erratic. And I may cry or I may fight or, you know, or I may just disappear. Um, but I am not the person they knew. And, um, and I'm still drinking two counties away every night. I'm still going back to that home bar. Um, for I for reasons I can't even explain. I don't even have any excuses for why I thought that was necessary. It's just what I did. And and so every night I'm driving drunk 
three counties away, you know, 35, 40 minutes every single night drunk. And, um, on November 19th, I get a, I get pulled over on another DWI. And, um, the only thing that was different that night was that I told the truth and I've been a liar a lot longer than I've been a drunk. I developed those skills early on. And so no one was more surprised than me when I told the truth that the, Officer asked me how much I'd had to drink. I knew I was supposed to say a couple. Everybody knows you're supposed to say a couple. And I said $67 worth because I knew how much my tab had been that I paid. And, um, and I went to jail and, um, I had a moment of clarity sitting in a jail cell. And that moment of grace was simply that I saw myself for what I was in that moment I could no longer say what's a nice girl like me doing in a place like this, or there's been a terrible misunderstanding. For me, this had just become a normal day at the office. You know, I, I get drunk, I drive and eventually I get caught and, um, and I get caught knowing how much trouble I can be in if I get caught again. And, and I do it anyway. And, um, and so I said a prayer and I asked God for help and I made a decision to go to AA and I meant that as sincerely as any decision I have ever made in my life. But the problem was they let me out. And when they let me out, instead of running to an AA meeting, um, I tried to fix the trouble I was in. I tried to get my car out of the pound and I tried to get my work off my case because by then I'm the assistant director at the daycare and I have not opened the daycare because I was in jail. And so I'm in trouble. Um, bunch of parents are standing out front waiting for me and I'm still incarcerated, but that my boss doesn't know that I made up some ridiculous story. I have no idea what it is now, but, um, but I know I'm in big trouble at work and, and my car is in the pound and my parents don't know where I've been and they don't know the trouble that I'm in and I don't want them to find out. And every attorney in Dallas is sending mail to my house and, and I've just got a lot on my plate. I can't be worrying about AA, you know? And, and so, uh, I, 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 that window of opportunity begins to close. I, the willingness, the fear, whatever it was, I, I get too busy with my project of trying to make my everything look okay instead of trying to get things to be okay. And um, I'm driving around a group, like I'm trying to make myself go, but the longer I wait, the worse idea that sounds because I kind of put together, they're going to want me to not drink there. And <laughs> I don't really think I cannot drink. I mean, this is a really bad time. It's, I call this alkalogic, you know, it's like when things settle down, I can probably write my inventory or, you know, when my life gets better, I'll go to AA. And, uh, I kind of don't figure out that that's the wrong order. And, um, so I'm driving around a group, but I can't make myself go in because I'm getting scared about what does that look like and how do you do that? And of course my mind is bouncing. I think, I don't think I'm unique in this. I'm going out, you know, six years and what happens if this thing happens and can you not drink then? And, you know, I can't even walk in the door because suddenly I can't have champagne at my wedding. What are we talking about here? I'm not engaged, but I've got to <laughs> plan ahead for this big soiree that I'm going to be having someday with somebody. And, uh, and I'm just making up all these excuses not to actually go to a meeting. <laughs> 
It's nuts. It is nuts. So you said you were driving around the meeting. Is that what you said? You're. I'm uh... a big orbiter. I like to orbit the meeting. I can even go to the parking lot. I knew the schedule of the meeting because I knew when the people went in and I knew when the people with the styrofoam cups came out. One night I accidentally showed up there at meeting time. I just almost had to go in. But then I remembered I don't have an AA book. And so I left the place where the AA books live to go on a quest to find a book in order to prepare for my meeting. And that takes me on a tour of half price books all over North Texas. And because then I'm so arrogant, I have to have a clean copy of the book. Um, now, I knew they had clean copies of the book at Barnes & Noble, but they were really expensive there. And I was not that optimistic about my prospects. And so I finally find a clean copy of the book and I start reading it by myself to prepare. Once again, I can't go to the meeting. I've got to read to study for the meeting. It's so stupid. I mean, it's just nuts. This is how my head's out to kill me. And so I'm studying this book by myself. And that's when I got drunk. And because um, I'm reading it alone and, and it seems like there's no good news. Now, Today I read the book and I read nothing but good news in there. But back then I'm like, holy cow, this is all about not drinking like forever. <laughs> and um, that does not seem like a good plan at all. And um, and really my the big fear was what well, I probably can't do this. Like I probably can't. Why would I walk in someplace and say, I'm turning myself in to not drink when I know I can't not drink. And uh, and so I start coming up with an alternative plan. And my alternative plan is I know a, a criminal who has a lot of more DWIs than me. And I think, here's a man with a real answer because he's not in jail. He's still drinking at my home bar. <laughs> and I'm thinking, my attorney told me I was going to jail for a year. And this dude's got eight DWIs and he's still drinking. So here's a man with a real answer. And I go to the bar to go talk to him. I'm not going to drink. I mean, of course I'm not going to drink. I'm not an idiot. Um, and so I'm just going to go talk to my favorite criminal about how he's not in prison and uh, see what he's got going on. Cause this seems like a workable plan. And instead what happens is that this criminal <laughs> tells me he can afford to be the kind of drunk he is, but I can't afford to be the kind of drunk I am. And suddenly I'm having a real bad day because the work drunk I know is in essence, 12 stepping me. He's like, I think you need some help. And I'm really unhappy about this. I want to kick that guy right in the baby maker. But I, <laughs> but I cannot deny that he knows, like he knows how I drink and he knows how I think. And, and he knows how I feel and <laughs> thinks I have a problem. And, uh, and the other thing that happens is that at some point there are drinks in front of me and at some point I drink them. And I don't remember making a decision because I probably didn't. I just picked it up and drank it. It's just automatic for somebody like me. If there is not something between me and that bright idea, I'll go with that bright idea every time. We will be continuing our conversation with Jennifer HK in just a moment. Just a reminder, you're listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at SoberSpeak.com. There you can also find the donate button, which you can use if and only if the spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. 
Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any uh, causes. Now, back to Miss uh, Jennifer HK. All right, Jennifer. So, you've gone back to the home bar. You asked for some business advice, if you will, or some legal you, advice. Yeah, legal advice from My a counsel. Criminal. Yeah, your counsel. <laughs> um, you didn't get the answer you were hoping for. So, take me from there, please. So I drank against my will. And, and once again, here's another one of those inklings that, that lead me to a clue, which is I will drink knowing it's a terrible idea to drink. I will know how much trouble I could be in, how dangerous this is, and I'll drink anyway. And, um, and it terrified me that I, I did, you know, I was around alcohol for, I don't know, 25 minutes and I'm drunk again. And that's when I got serious about going to AA. And so on November 19th, no, it was December 4th, uh, November 19th when I got the felony DWI on December 4th, I, um, I walked into the Plano group and, um, I sat where the newcomer loves to sit. I sat as close to the door as humanly possible. This was back in the early 90s when the Plano group was in a little greenhouse that someone had sort of donated for that purpose. And um, everyone was sitting at the other end of the room in a circle. And I'm sitting way back here by the door. And um, and they turned out the lights and they lit the candles. And I knew I was in a cult, but it didn't matter because I had nowhere else to go. And um <laughs> And right before the meeting began, someone said, hey, there's a there's a seat down here. Why don't you come sit with us? And I really believe that my recovery began when I gave up the seat that I had chosen. And I started taking suggestions from the members of Alcoholics Anonymous. They asked me to move to a different chair and I moved. And um, and I think that's really when it starts to happen for, for all of us is when I am open to an idea. I don't have to understand that it's going to work or if it's going to work or how it's going to work. I just need to know my way doesn't. And so I sit down in that circle and, the, and those people begin to share. And I don't know what they're talking about. I mean, I have been to, I think I'd probably been to two meetings in 10 years um, because of counselors or whatever that had suggested I go but I didn't pay any attention. I didn't want to catch anything there. Um, <laughs> this is the first time I'm really here because I think I might need to be. And even with that, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I know that I'm in trouble and really my motives in, in being in AA at that moment was I knew that the possibility was strong that I was going to get sentenced to AA, that, that the judge was going to make me go. And I thought it would look better if I went on my own accord before they suggested I had a problem. Like I could wink, wink, decide that I, oh, I saw this and understood. And which is not really what I thought at all. Um, but I, I walked in there and, um, and these people were really nice to me. They were really kind. And that's really how God's love showed up for me in the beginning was just the kindness of the members. They were excited to see me, and I was nothing to be excited about. Um, I had these sweats on that I had bought in the men's department of Walmart. I had short hair, uh, no makeup. I wore a ball cap and boy shoes. They didn't know what it was, but it wept a lot. And <laughs> I had nothing to offer anyone. Um, 
And yet these people were tremendously nice to me. And they kept saying things like, you're the most important person here, which I love. But then they followed it up with, because you remind us of where we never want to be again. And I thought, (laughs) wait a minute, that's not nice. But I can't, I'm not hearing anything that I can really hang on to. I, I know that you're nice and I know that you're kind and I know that you're excited to see me, but I'm looking for a solution. And I don't even for sure know what's wrong with me. I know there's something wrong, but I don't really know what it is. And one of my big stumbling blocks was that I didn't grow up in an alcoholic home. No one else in my family that I knew of, now I've learned since, there's alcoholism all up and down the tree, but they didn't talk about it because both sides of my family are religious. And so it was sort of hidden and in the in the closets and in the pantry and on the weekends and that kind of thing. Um, and so I didn't know about that. Um, but I also didn't understand what alcoholism is. And so about halfway through the meeting, this man began to share and he had on bib overalls, which is not significant to anyone but me. I have this thing for bib overalls. I'm convinced that in heaven, we're all getting wings and bib overalls because they're the most comfortable things in the whole world. And so he's wearing these overalls and he looks like he's had a drink. Not today, but at some point, because the rest of the people in the room were very clean and shiny and they looked like they drank juice or milk or something. And um, they did not look like the people I drank with. But at least this guy had a big, long beard and he had a camo fishing cap and he just had on a costume that looked like something that might show up at one of my bars. And um, and he said, I didn't know I was an alcoholic. I just thought I was thirsty. And I'm thinking, finally, I understand this guy. And he said, but my problem is the more I drink, the thirstier I get. And it begins with the very first drink. And as he said that, something clicked for me because I had been trying to solve this mystery as a bar drinker. Like, why can some people walk into a bar and have one drink, maybe two? They'll have a kamikaze on their birthday and then they go home. And I have one drink, maybe two. And I'm off to the races and I can't tell you how much I'm going to have. And I can't tell you where I'm going to wind up and I can't tell you when it's going to be over. And I can't tell you how many people I'm going to hurt or what I'm going to steal or what kind of lies I'm going to tell. And, uh, and why can they do that? And I can't. And Jean explained it in a very, in a perfect way. The more I drink, the thirstier I get, it begins with the very first drink. And so for a drunk like me, the whole ball game is how do you not take that first drink? And he began to go into how he did that. And and it was by getting a spiritual advisor, which we call a sponsor. I was really thankful that he explained what that was. And he said, you know, he took these 12 spiritual principles, the steps, and and they went through those together. And and somewhere in that process, he developed a relationship with a higher power that he called God. And that when he got that relationship with God, he hadn't had to take a first drink and he said he hadn't been thirsty in a real long time. And, and that made sense to me. I, I, I didn't know my journey in AA has, has been a whole lot of, I don't know if I can do it, but I know somebody like me can do it. I don't know if I can stay sober, but somebody like me can stay sober. I don't know if I can make it this long, but somebody like me can make it this long. And, and as he began to explain, I thought, oh, okay. So 
at least there's a possibility. I know there's a name for it. And I have identified that's what happens to me. That's why I can't walk into the bar and say, I'm leaving at 825 and get up and leave at 825. I, alcohol has the power. As soon as it's in my body, it becomes the power in my life and it will make every decision it chooses to on where I go, what I do, what I spend, who I hurt, what lies I need to tell, all of it. Um, and so, I've heard you talk about before when you when you said something about the time. It made me think about that example you would give that some people can actually watch their watch and do what it says. Can you go through that? Absolutely. Somebody, some some people go into a bar. And they have one drink, maybe two, and then they look at their watch and the watch says it's time to go home and they go home. And they'll say, oh, look at the time. Mama's got dinner waiting on me. And I would think, why would you do that? We have pretzels here, you know, because I thought of the bar as my home. My home was the place I slept, you know, but the bar was really home base. And um, and one drink, maybe two. And some other guy would say, well, hope. Oh, I've got to go look at the time. The game's about to start. And that's when I turn into the flight attendant. I point out there are TVs here, here, and here. Why would you do that? And my question changes because I'm a daily drinker and a daily drunk. My question changes from why would you do that to how do you do that? Because I can't do that and I don't know why. And it's because of this phenomenon of craving that at a cellular level, I cannot change. I can't make a decision to be different. I can't make rules that will change that. It is something that I don't have this power. And thus, I've got to find a power that can help me. Um, because there's no way that on my own, I won't do what I did that night that I had no intention of drinking. I'll pick up a drink anyway. I, it makes me nuts when somebody like I sponsor will say, well, I have no intention of drinking today. I can go to the bar. I have no intention. I I don't know about you, but I've accidentally gotten drunk many, many times. I I don't have to intend to. I don't have to want to. I don't have to plan to. I, I will drink because that's as natural as breathing for me. What's different is when there's this power added that that will be my defense when I don't have one. So... I do have a question for you. It's a little off track here. I'm looking behind you, and basically what I think I see is a a, a picture of you and your husband back uh -huh. there. And so, and so obviously something has happened since you actually got sober. Looks like you're married now. And I, I mean, uh, when did that happen? How did it happen? You know, just kind of talk about that. A little sure. Bit. I actually am wearing overalls in that picture based on my deep belief about how magical overalls are. Um, I actually, I met my husband uh, in high school, but he was a nice guy, a nice, nerdy, quiet guy. And um, <clears throat> we were, we were in students together and he would look at me all moony and, um, and bless his heart, he was so shy. And I was just getting started. You know, I was already drinking and kind of going wild. And and I knew I could hurt him. And so uh, I come into AA and, I, man, as soon as I start working those steps and I start getting sober, I'm ready for a husband. You know, I've told you my plan. I've got this plan. And, um, and so I am. 
I am hot and heavy looking for a husband and I, I don't want to fool around. I don't want to date. I don't want to be promiscuous. I mean, I, I knew I couldn't stay sober if I acted that way. I, I knew I couldn't bring that barroom behavior in, into Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I, I, I really did. I, I wanted to date. I wanted that kind of thing. And, and, uh, and I, it was painful because I hadn't grown up much. You know, I, I had developed most of my social skills in a bar and so had most of the guys I was running around with. Uh, I, when I found AA, I fell in love and I was going to meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. And then after a certain point, I was doing a whole lot of talking. I was driving all over the Metroplex um, talking and thinking I was going to find him there. And um and I didn't, I didn't have any sense of really who I was or what I, what, what really belonged in my life. And so, uh, I dated a lot of different people and, um, and it didn't, it just didn't work out in part because I was coming from this place of fear and need. And so I wasn't making good decisions because I wasn't, it was based on just this fear of being alone more than, what, what can I bring to the party? That kind of thing. And so I went through a long period of time where I, I wasn't seeing anybody and I, I, it just sort of got down to me and God, uh, the pain of doing things the way that I had been doing it got so great that I just told my sponsor, okay, um, I want to learn how to date like a sane human being. And, um, and I'm, and if I don't think it's God's will, then I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to continue to do this. This is too painful. And, um, so I began to work on a sane and sound sex ideal, which is from our book. I don't know that everybody does that, but I certainly did. And I don't, I, I want to go into that just a little bit because it, it was such an important part of my story. Um, I had gotten my heart broken pretty badly in AA and I had fallen in love with the one and I, you know, and, and then he didn't, he didn't want to live happily ever after with me. And, um, and it was really painful. And, um, and so I went to a sponsor and we began to take a look at what my standards were and what we discovered was my standards were you like me check good enough. And I, so we kind of had to work on that. And so after each relationship, I would do some writing about what I liked, what I appreciated, what I learned. Um, and so I was to write about what kind of person I thought God would have in my life, what God would choose for me. And then I was also to look at, am I that kind of person? And so we looked at character and we looked at um, am I fully self-supporting? And we looked at being evenly yoked and, and with each relationship, I now can say every relationship I had in, in sobriety was a success because I learned something I could not have learned any other way. There's only so much writing you can do. You know, there are other things where I had to figure out this is important to me. This isn't, this is a priority. This isn't, I, um, and so I finally got to this spot where I really was okay with my life sober and single. All of a sudden I had this big shift. And, and so instead of looking at my life as lack, I don't have children and I don't have a husband and I don't have a home and I don't have, just have these apartments and the, you know, crazy sponsees and whatever else. 
I started seeing it as abundance. I started looking at my life going, look at all this freedom I have. I can go off anytime I want to. I can spend my money however I choose to. I am never alone if I don't want to be. I have people in my life coming out the wazoo. You know, I just, this. there's this life, this big full life and nothing is missing. I don't need anybody to fill some spot because I am loved enough and, and I get to love enough and what a glorious place to be. Cause then I'm not making choices based on fear. And, um, right before I turned 40, this guy, uh, that I knew from high school reached out to me on MySpace cause we're real <laughs> cool like that. Um, Throughout our story, we had been really close to each other. We went to high school together. We went to the same college. At one point, while I was sober, we were living in apartment complexes literally across the street from each other. I would go walking every morning. I would walk around a restaurant where he was a chef. I had no idea he was inside. It wasn't until he was in Colorado and I was back here in Plano that he reached out to me on MySpace and we began to talk. And I think initially he just kind of wanted to see what was going on with me. Um, he found out I was single. I found out he was single, but it was very Victorian. We sort of courted each other. He would send me emails. He would not, we didn't talk on the phone at all. And he flew from Colorado to Dallas to take me to dinner. I mean, he, he stayed for a week and, and I knew that I was in love with him before he showed up. Um, but the coolest part was that I was in no hurry. We did long distance. We made a decision that um, we'd try it for two years. And if we wound up in the same place and could do that without it being painful, then it was probably what was supposed to happen. And if it didn't, that was okay too. And in short order, things sort of fell into place where we could be together. And, um, and it was a really neat thing because I, the whole time I was just like, if this is God's will, I can't run it off. And if it's not, I can't make it work. And so I was as completely authentically myself as I could possibly be, even when I knew it might disappoint him or, you know, I, I never tried to package myself up as something I'm not. And, and it's been a really cool thing learning how to, to be married. How long y'all been married now? We're coming up on 12 years in October. Wow, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah. Hi, Jennifer. So, <clears throat> excuse me. I, uh, you are talking to people that are going to be <clears throat> in all four corners of the world. And if there's anything that you can share from your heart, your experience, strength, and hope to kind of wrap us up here uh, regarding your experience and Alcoholics Anonymous and what you would say to people, is there anything that you would like to share? Absolutely. Um, for a long time in AA, I could speak pretty eloquently about the idea that there's a God that loves you unconditionally and that wants nothing but good things for you. But I didn't necessarily believe that for myself. And I'm not entirely sure why. I, I guess I was sort of invested in being broken. There was just something about um, that I just couldn't quite let go of. Like I had somehow disappointed God in some way. Um, it's an old idea, you know, that I started out on one path and then there was this big swerve. And um, today I believe that 
a really cool thing that happened. I don't know that I had this belief. My dad pointed it out to me. Um, my dad really liked the idea that I would be a minister. His, his dad had become a minister and his dad's dad was a minister and, and he had actually gone to seminary too. And, um, and then I turn into a drunk and, um, and for a long time, my dad would say, if you just go back to church, you'd be okay. And I couldn't do that. I couldn't, I couldn't be honest about who I was. I, there was so much guilt and shame. I couldn't hang out in God's house. That just felt wrong to me. It just, none of it felt good uh, or hopeful or helpful. And um, I, I go now, but that took some time and that took some healing and that there was, there was a path back to that. Um, but at some point my father uh, gave me a card and, and it said that God had chosen my pulpit for me. And then it was here with y'all telling my story. And, and uh, it was a way that was completely authentic to my life because I, I get to do all the same things. I get to talk to people. I get to help people. I get to share my story. I get to share spiritual literature with people. I mean, all the things that I liked best about that, um, I get to do here and I get to do it with my people, uh, completely my people. And I don't have to edit anything or pretend to be anything other than what I am. Um, but, but for a long time, I'm wandering through knowing that, that God absolutely will provide for you and that God absolutely does love you. And that, but I don't have a God that, that I believe feels that way about me. And, uh, I didn't know I was going to say this. Um, and so I'm wandering through life and I know that I'm struggling with self-esteem and I know that I'm making decisions and choices based on, on fear and low self-esteem, but I, I don't know how to make it different. And so, um, when I first did the, the second step for the very first time, I talked to a man and asked him about his concept of a higher power. And he said, I believe there's a God where nothing you can do can make him love you any less and nothing you can ever do will make him love you anymore. And I loved the way that sounded, but I didn't write it on my second step because I thought that was too much. I just, I just didn't. And um, so I, right around the time I was 14 years sober, I'm sort of hitting a wall with this belief, uh, this limited concept of God that I think is, you know, just God, don't give up on me. Just don't give up on me. But I, I, I haven't bought into nothing but love, nothing but grace and mercy. Um, and so I have this friend who was reading this book. It's a spiritual book. It's not a conference approved literature. So I don't ever talk about what it is. Um, cause it doesn't matter when, when it's time for an awakening, God will use the phone book. It, oh, well, we don't use phone books anymore, but whatever. <laughs> God will use a catalog if it's time. And, and, but anyway, this friend of mine's nagging me to death about this book and she wants me to read this book and I don't want to read the book cause I know the book's going to be some sappy thing that I don't want to read and, but she won't let it go. And so then she buys me the book and then she nags me every day about reading the book and I don't want to read the book, but just to shut her up, I'm going to have to read the book and I'm reading the book and I still don't like the book and I don't think it's going to do anything. And she's just certain this is going to rock my socks and I don't like it. And finally, I mean, near the end of the book, I'm just struggling through it to make her shut up. Um, there's this part 
And there's a character in the book named Sophia, and, and, and the character in the book, Sophia, is one aspect of God's personality, in essence. There, there are several different characters for God in this book, and, and this one happens to be named Sophia. And I have a niece named Sophia. And my middle niece, Sophia, when she was little bitty, she loved me so much. She wanted to breathe my air. She wanted to think my thoughts. She wanted to be just like me. And, um, and I couldn't explain it. I could never explain why she just glommed onto me from the get-go and we just had a special thing. And um, so I'm reading this book and there's a Sophia there and then there's the Sophia in my life and I'm thinking about the two of them. And, and in the book, this character Sophia is God's judgment. And in my life, there is this Sophia who loves me unconditionally and inexplicably. And these two ideas collide and I'm thinking about God's judgment is that I am unconditionally and inexplicably loved. And, um, and this, my brain explodes and, um, and, and God enters in, in a new way. And you would think that it would just be this, I'm crumbling or whatever, but instead I'm standing in my backyard and I'm sort of shouting at the sky, like, okay, fine. You can just love me no matter what. I don't think this is going to go well for you, but fine. You can just love me. And I'm just going to walk through the world and pretend like there's a God that I cannot screw up with. And nothing changed in my life, but everything changed because I entered the world in a whole new way when I believed that there was a God that was just going to love me no matter what, whether I did what I was supposed to do or whether I didn't, whether I said the right thing or not, whether I paid the bill on time or didn't, God was going to love me anyway. Now, what I know for me is that I receive far better when I am sober and seeking and serving, I experience that love in 3D when I am doing those things. And so for me, it's best and healthiest if I'm participating in the relationship that way. But I believe that God's going to love me no matter what. Even if I drink, God's going to love me no matter what. I'm just going to cut off communication if that happens. And so... I want to participate in this relationship. I want to seek and I want to serve and I want to give as an extension of the love that I am receiving. But that's not God's rule. That's what I choose. That's how the love manifests itself from my end. But I am so incredibly blessed that I got to meet that God with you guys and and doing what we do. And I think it took every second of that time uh, reading the book and going to meetings and saying prayers and listening to talks and all the things that we do so that my will could finally break and say, no, really, take all of me, good and bad. You can have it all and I'm willing to go wherever you want me to go and do whatever you want me to do. And and hopefully... Um, there's some some love and service in that, and hopefully others benefit from it because it's the most joyful I've ever been. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. Uh, and I know that you 
I know you're here spending time with me uh, today and on our last session that we've had together, and you do this all the time. And uh, I know you go on the road and do it. I know you do it a lot of Zoom meetings. And uh, I'm just um, eternally grateful that you came in here and spent some time with me. God bless you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm going to read from page 164 out of the big book. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us, like me and Miss Jennifer, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. Again, I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a treat. Jennifer H.K., once again, we appreciate your presence here on Sober Speak. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure spending time with you for a couple of different episodes. And if you're listening out there and you were positively impacted by Jennifer's last two episodes, please pause your device and share them with a friend or a family member. It may be just what they need today. Now, on to a little bit of a listener feedback for Ewan's. And our first bit of feedback here is a voicemail that was actually left by by someone named, and I think the name is Margie, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I'm going to let you listen to this and then I'll comment afterwards. Hey, John, my name is Margie and I've got a bunch of sobriety, uh, 30 plus years. And I'm new to podcasts, but I'm really disappointed in Sober Speak because I really want to hear the speakers. And I find myself getting irritated with the extraneous stuff, like your your uh, introductions, your conversations with them. Period. I don't know how. I know that's complaining. I I'm sorry to be a belly aker, but I you know I just was frustrated. I'm frustrated, and um, uh, you are doing a service for AA. There is no doubt. Uh, for alcoholics. And I thank you for that. Margie, thank you so much for your candid feedback. It is most appreciated. I don't consider it belly aching at all. You just have an opinion and that is okay. That's what, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and all the 12 step programs are made out of a lot of people with a lot of opinions. And so here's what I would say is that one way you can um, skip over my gibberish, if you will, is there on a podcast player, I don't know how you're listening to this, but there's generally a little button that you can just hit a 30 second forward, you know, just hit that, I don't know, six, seven times, whatever it is until you hear me not talking anymore and you hear the speaker. And that's one way to to get over it. And there And there are tons of other sober, um, uh, uh, 
sober uh, formats out there and different podcasts. And some of them have just speakers on them. And that's really all it is. It is just the speaker talking. And if you have any questions on that, please write me at john, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. You didn't leave your email, so I have no way to communicate with you. But if you're listening to this and you want some uh, additional insight on the the world of podcasting and or other places that you can uh, access uh, speakers, you just let me know. But thank you for writing in. Or, excuse me. Thank you for calling in. Or it's not even really a call. Is it you you click a little button and then you record your voice. So, uh, thank you for leaving a message, I guess is the way we say it. Emily DMs me on the gram. She says, "Hey John, I just wanted to say it was so good to see you Sunday at yoga. Emily uh, comes to our yoga Sunday uh, classes. By the way, if you want, if you're interested in joining that, it is open to all. And, and the first half of it is a meeting and an open meeting uh, for anybody in recovery or anybody interested in recovery. You don't have to be an alcoholic. And then the second half is a yoga slash meditation session uh, led by uh, Megan P and Tanya. They kind of uh, go back and forth on who's leading that. But you go to our website, soberspeak.com, and you click on the sober resources tab. But anyway, Emily, back to Emily on the gram. She said, it was good to see you Sunday at yoga. I so desperately wanted to stick around after and talk to everyone. Tell you we'd been missing you. I fell asleep in Shavasana at the end. (laughs) She says, I woke up and I was like, oh shit. S. She says, oh, S. She says, I was so confused. Laugh out loud. I had to tell Megan that I didn't mean to pass out. Oops. <laughs> anyway, hope you have a great week. As always, grateful for you. And I'm grateful for you. And I always love to see you on the at those yoga classes, uh, Emily. Thank you so much. Little, she put a little praying hands there at the end. But thanks for writing in. Chastity writes in and she says, hello, John at Sober Speak. Well, hello, Chastity. She says, I love the podcast. I also heard that you would be willing, or I remember this, willing to send a list of speakers to those who might be available to speak. I'm from New Mexico and our group could really benefit from hearing other speakers from other parts of the nation or world. Please send me the list you referred to. I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much, Chastity J. Well, Chastity, as you know, I got you that list out. And for anybody else listening out there, I have many of our speakers that have been on the podcast before. I have their emails and their names, uh, first their first names and their emails, and I can send those out to you. They're, you know, they can be either at live meetings if you need them to, or, I mean, you know, if the logistics work out, or they can come join you at your Zoom meetings, and uh, they're more than happy to do so. So just send me a note to John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com, and I will get that over to you. Marie writes in. Marie says, hi, John. I'm originally from the Bronx, New York but now living near Seattle, Washington, where I got sober. My sobriety date is August 26th of 2016. 
Add- addiction runs rampant and rampant. How do you pray? You know what? I know I've said that word. I know what it means. R-A-M-P-A-N-T. But do you put the T on the end? Rampant in my family. M- my apologies. I'm, I'm bastardizing the English language at this moment. She says, my mom has had a terrible gambling addiction. My father had was an alcoholic who died 38 years ago from this disease. He was 43. My brother John died at the age of 42 from a drug overdose. I have six younger brothers and two and only two are not addicts as far as I know. Ma'am. She says it was easy for me to live in denial of my own drinking problem. After all, I only drank wine and always out of a pretty glass. That it was two bottles a night didn't faze me in the least. I finally quit drinking when the cold, hard truth that I couldn't stop finally hit me. I went to my first AA meeting and never looked back. I have a sponsor, and I also sponsor other women as well. There were a few months last summer when I opted out of the program thinking I could do it on my own. I have parted ways with my sponsor, and she took it personally, gaslighted me, and turned me off for a while. One Day, though, I thought I should take up smoking again. That put the fear of God in me be, in God in me because I realized I was working toward a relapse. I got another sponsor and started working the steps again. I was never into podcasts before, but I went looking for AA speakers when I came across Sober Speak. It was only a few weeks ago. I love June G's story. I also enjoy Julia K, Matthew M, Tim H, and Steve L. I recommended Sober Speak to all my friends in recovery. I'm so grateful to have found you. Thank you for all you do, John. God bless you for your service. This grateful alcoholic appreciates you. Big heart emoji, Marie L. Well, big heart emoji right back at you, Marie L. I so much appreciate you writing in. I'm so glad that we found each other. Robinson writes in, and the subject line was a Tim H. episode. He says, hi, John. I really enjoyed the session with Tim H. I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and currently live overseas. I am just getting sober, day three, and have been in and out of the rooms over the last few years while away. I'm in Louisville this summer, and I'm looking to connect with some good AA. Do you know how I might be able to introduce myself to Tim H., even remotely. I realize anonymity is important, so I understand that if that that is not possible. On another note, my father has a similar sobriety date to Tim, and he's from Louisville. Perhaps they know each other. Robbie B. Thanks for this podcast. It's a huge, huge sort, huge source of strength for me and many others. Robinson. Well, Robinson. As you know, I got you in touch with Tim H., and I hope you guys are able to hit it off and uh, um, have a have a have a lasting friendship. And I'm so glad that uh, I was able to hook you two up. 
Joel writes in, he says, Hey, John, uh, I found your podcast after listening to a bunch of Richard Rohr podcasts, and I got a little too spiritual and thus sliding on my AA program. Man, I would I would love to have Richard Rohr actually on my podcast. Uh, I hear a lot about him, and I, I know he's a, a fine man, and I've listened to a few of his podcasts as well. Nonetheless, uh, uh, Joel says there was a bunch of AA podcasts, but sober speak fit what I was looking for. I love listening. Matthew M and Tim H really resonated with me. I'm from Rome, Georgia and Chattanooga, Tennessee as well. I split time between the dose. I said, why did I say dose? Anyway, it says the two, you know what I'm saying? The two, um, he says, I had been sober for only five years from five from 2005 to 2010, then relapsed a few years before deciding in 2018 that AA really just offers a great life. I just need to live it. Sober Speak helped me to realize that again. I love the enthusiasm everyone you interview has for AA. Please keep the podcast coming. Joel J. With Joel J, the podcasts are a coming. I've got several in the queue right now. I always say one week at a time, but you know what? Uh, so far, it's been a few weeks at a time, but thank you for writing in, Joel. Marie posts on, oh, she actually posted this on Instagram, and it was regarding Tim H, the episode called Do the Stitches and Leave the Pattern Up to God is the two or three back from this one. She, uh, Marie says, I listened to this episode this morning and shared, quote, do the stitches and leave the pattern up to God with several friends and both my sponsees. It really resonated with me. One of the women I sponsored was confused about turning it over at the same time while having to take action. I think this simple quote sums it up. And this quote she's talking about is do the stitches and leave the pattern up to God. She says, as an avid, in quotes, hooker, and then she puts in parentheses, one who crochets, <laughs> close parentheses, I love the metaphor, big smiley face. Well, Marie H., I'm glad you got a lot out of that, and I sent your sentiments on to Mr. Tim H. Remy writes in, he says, John, this is Remy, and I'm turning 33 and I live in Norway. I'm sober a bit over three years. Oh, another listener from Norway. So glad to hear from you, Remy. By the way, you know, when I was out there, if you will, I do remember that I used to drink uh, Remy Martin. Uh, and for those of you who don't know what Remy Martin is, it's a cognac. Uh, uh, it's been a while since I drank it. But anyway, that Game to mind. Uh, he says, I started AA to get my girlfriend back. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, how many times have I heard that? Uh, I got her back, but a year in and no real change, I was just dry and basically drunk. 
uh, oh, I was basically a dry drunk. So she ended things and I was left with two options. Luckily, I took the one that seems to be the right one. I found Sober Speak kind of randomly on Spotify. I was having a rough summer last year, and my sponsor suggested finding podcasts with the lack of physical meetings, and it worked. In some strange, weird way, it actually worked, and got and it got me enough clarity to go to one of the only physical meetings, even though it was a bit of a trek. And all of the ep- and out of all of the episodes I've listened to, I kind of pick random random ones here and there. The one that resonates with me the most is with Reno John. I would say he is the most quote helpful uh, if, if in lack of a better words for it. Well Remy Remy Martin, I know this. Uh, well, who knows? It could be you. Could be Remy M. You never can tell. But I'm not breaking your anonymity, at least on purpose. Uh, Remy from Norway, I am so glad you wrote in and uh, uh, tell all of our friends out in Norway that we said hello. Now, why would I say something? To people in Norway with a British accent, I have no idea. But nonetheless, Jan writes in. And last but not least, and now, now this does go back to the listener who left the voicemail a little bit earlier. I think it was uh, Margie gets tired of the gibberish. But nonetheless, he said, Jan, re- Jan says, hi, John. I was listening to a speaker in Al-Anon that recently resonated with me. He talked about a speaker, Billy Kay, uh, who he had heard and how the big book awakening has really made an impact on him. So I found your podcast when I searched for Billy Kay. A lot of what he spoke about made a lot of sense to me as well. I will be a listener to Sober Speak now, and I'm grateful to have found you. Thank you for your service, Jan in Lafayette, Colorado. Is it Lafayette or Lafayette? I think it's Lafayette, Colorado. Colorado. Thanks for writing in, Jan. All right, everybody, that is the end of this here episode of Sober Speak. Once again, we take this one week at a time. I will probably be back next week if I don't get hit by the proverbial bus or something like that. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Thanks for listening in, everybody. I sure do appreciate you.